Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Wow, that was a good transition, wasn't it? I, uh, I don't know if you guys have figured this out yet, but here's what's going on when you get feedback from me. One of two things. A, I have a giant head that seems to resonate. <laughs> but B, we keep, you know, we've extended the platform and I keep getting closer and closer to you and at some point I've moved in front of the speakers and so now I have to move back here, so... We're thinking a little bit this morning about order. I'll tell you what's been on my mind. Buy low and sell high. You understand? I don't know exactly what that means in relationship to church, except except I think it means this. The church is kind of down here right now. I don't mean here. I just mean generally church across the world has suffered through these last 15 months or so. It's not what it was when we left. It turns out the Church of Jesus Christ is made to meet together. We're made to interact together. We're made to see each other. We're made to, to sing out. We're made to celebrate together. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me a little convicting because I'm not sure we did that with all of our energy 15 months ago. Maybe we didn't value it quite as much as we could have or should have. I think we'll treat it differently. But I do think right now you could buy low on the church. (laughs) You know, it's a good time to invest. And maybe that's the point. It's a good time to invest. And in what way are you investing? In what way are you preparing to invest? In what way is your heart and your mind and your spirit getting ready to invest. One of the things I've noticed about myself as I get older is I like order more and more. I don't like things to be chaotic or disorderly. Now, that hasn't always been true of me. In fact, there was a time that I didn't really care. I mean, I wasn't like, you know, growing up, I wasn't the kid who had a neat space in my room. You know, I wasn't the person who was highly structured and ordered about a lot of things. Over time, I've learned to be, and you know, I don't know, like I had a deficit growing up, and then at some point I sort of was healthy for five minutes, and then I've tipped over. Now I'm over on the other side. You know, I create deadlines that are weeks ahead, and then I feel devastated if I'm not hitting them. I like order, and I like structure. And in some ways, that makes sense, because we're Westerners, by and large, it doesn't matter where you came from. If you live here very long, you start to think like a Westerner. And Westerners do weird stuff. And just so you know, it's not like this at every place in the world. We think it is, but it isn't. So like, for example, Westerners are linear thinkers. We think about the past, the present, and the future. Time has a structure, and it's a line. And on one end of the continuum is the past, and right now is somewhere in the middle, and the future is up ahead, and that's how we think. Now, some of our younger people, they've learned to overcome this, and they can think a little more flexibly than some of us older people, but I don't know. How many of you had this experience where you've watched a movie, and it's critically acclaimed, and everybody loves it, and you're like, 
this plot has no linear trajectory. I don't know what happened before. I don't know what's happening now. I don't know if we're in the future or the past. I don't know if this is reality or a dream. I don't get it. And maybe it was a great movie, but the plot made no sense to me because it wasn't linear. I'm an Andy Griffith guy. Start at the beginning, tell me one story, and finish it at the end. I want to be done when it's over. This, it just bothers me. And the age and demographic of the crowd came to the surface. And so I think all that desire for order is very much about sort of our way of thinking. And we do. We do. There is a right and a wrong way to do things. You don't think so? Stand in the grocery line to check out sometime and see what your blood pressure does. I mean, have you had the experience lately that somebody in front of you is writing a check? What is that about? Do people still do that? And that extra eight seconds is devastating for me. Put your card in. Put your, put your code in. Come on, let's chop, chop. We got to get out of here. My kale is wilting. <laughs> and by the way, I, we are very respectful of lines in this country. Lines mean something. There's an appropriate way to queue up for any event. Go to Disneyland. Go, go to any amusement park in the United States, and you can be kicked out for breaking in line. Why that's not true on the freeway, I don't know, but it is still true at amusement parks. And just so you know, that is a very Western thing. Queues in other parts of the world look more like a funnel than a line. Just everybody that can get in, just get in, and eventually you'll narrow down and it'll be your turn. But relax, because that's how it's going to work. And we take that sense of order and we apply it in the way we deal in relationships. And we particularly apply it in the way we deal in the life of the kingdom of God. Here's appropriate ways. Here's the order. Here's the sequence. We all sort of understand what it is. Don't break the sequence. A new person comes. We welcome them. They kind of have to hover out on the outside a little bit. Hopefully at some point, you know, they come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we pull them in a little further. After they've been seasoned and matured and trained up and equipped, they can do some stuff, you know. And if you don't think there's a real sequence, then I'll let you look at my emails. Because we have a very strong sense of order. The world into which Jesus came had a much, much higher sense of order than the one in which we live. In fact, even today, if you go to Israel and you go into a place to eat, you're going to find that there is a sink available with cups so that you may ceremonially wash your hands. And while you're eating, a number of people will. Not everybody's orthodox. Not everybody participates. But there is a sequence. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. I mean, we have some little sequence about going to eat, but it's a little sequence. I mean, in the public space, there is a way to wash your hands and prepare to eat. And if you don't do it, you'd be kind of like, huh. Come Sabbath, sundown on Friday, this is good information for you to know. You should know that most of the elevators in most of the buildings become Shabbat elevators. That means that you no longer 
have to push buttons, which also means you're no longer allowed to push buttons. Which means if you're staying in a hotel that has, you know, I don't know, randomly 30 stories, you will be stopping at every single floor because it's Shabbat and there's an order and there's a sequence and there's a way of doing things. Now, some of the newer buildings, there is one Shabbat elevator and not everybody has to ride it. But a lot of old buildings, all of the elevators become sequenced in that way. That's a world in which Jesus came. Highly ordered, highly structured. There were some things that needed to happen. There were some expectations of what ought to happen. And Jesus walks into that space and he begins to process through the will of God in the face of this great order. I was thinking about these uh, uh, colloquialisms that we have that sort of reflect the fact that we have a deep sense of order. How about this? A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single... Yeah, because we think that. You know, and, and sometimes as parents we talk about, here's another one that kind of goes with it. You have to walk before you can... And we tell our children this. You know, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You think you want to buy that? No, no, no. <laughs> you got you to gotta do this, and then you got to do this, and then you got to do this, because this is how we did it growing up. This is our sequence. This is the logical sequence. And as boomers, we all know this is the right sequence. That's <laughs> how things should happen. But we, have, we are raising up generations who don't think like that. And, and by the way, if you're all disturbed at your children or your grandchildren... It's your sense of order that's getting messed up. And so somewhere in there, there's something deeply inside of us that's wired like that. Which came first, the chicken or the... See, that's a whole conversation about order and sequence. That we understand, we get it. We throw these things around because we have an expectation about it. Don't get the cart before the... See, sequence, order. Makes perfect sense to us. I'm not sure you can go to anywhere else in the world that's not Western. And you can say those things because they'll be like, what? That's just, you need to relax. Yeah, there's a biblical order. Listen to this, Mark 4, 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And so Jesus is teaching at this moment, and what he's saying is, listen, you think you've got to control everything. You think you've got to understand it. You think you have to have some kind of sequence in your brain so that it all makes sense. I'm just going to tell you this. You put some seed in the ground, and you don't know what's happening. You don't know how it works. But the God of the universe has seen something through. So you could take a deep breath and relax if you wanted to. If you wanted to. I think this sequencing, this idea of order, even applies to our testimonies. I don't know about you, but I want an orderly testimony. Just me. By the way, greetings to all our folks online. I have this rare privilege when I drive over from our other campus. I have the rare privilege of being online and chatting with people and praying over people as their names pops up. So I want to say hello to you and welcome. We do... Th- we value so much that you're with us, and we consider you to be an extension of the sanctuary. You just sort of are flowing right out the back of the building. I want my testimony to make sense. I want it to be orderly. I want when people ask questions, I want to have it all figured out. When they tell me how it's supposed to work and, 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 and how to love, and, and, and you know, as we talk about how do we do this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, I want to have that figured out. 
I'm just like the scribe we talked about last week. You know, this is what I think. I've got to love God and love my neighbor. You're right. Do that. Well, but wait a minute. Who's my neighbor? Because I, I understand this love God thing, I think. But loving my neighbor is very complicated. And I want my testimony to be clean. I, I want to know how it's all supposed to fit together. When we were getting ready for our service at Pasadena a few minutes ago, uh, the person running media came up to me and said, listen, I just want to be sure that we're clear today. There are no points in this sermon, right? <laughs> yep, this is, a, this is a completely pointless sermon. I <laughs> but here's a question that I think is worth asking. To what degree should we carry the love and compassion of Jesus Christ? To whom? And to what degree should we carry the love and compassion of Jesus Christ? Because I want a clean testimony that's got it all figured out. I want the question answered. And who is my neighbor? Who, who is supposed to get excluded from my purity circle so that I maintain a, a relationship of holiness and purity and identity? And then how do I turn then my attention to throw my arms and heart and soul and mind open to people to love them as I love myself? Because I have a sequence in my brain. I have an order. And I didn't just get it all by myself. I was taught it. The church has sort of created the church into which Jesus Christ stepped. The Judeo tradition, the Jewish tradition, the, the Levitical law, these structures, these sequences in which everybody had some sort of way in which you're supposed to love, you're supposed to embrace, you're supposed to exclude, you're supposed to maintain purity, you're supposed to maintain identity. And I think we all want a nice, clean testimony that does it all right and gets it all right. But Jesus seemed to practice an unclean kind of testimony. An extravagant, irreverent, improper love for people. And it happens over and over and over and over. I don't know if you're keeping track, but our sense of order has been destroyed in the last few months. So, so think about this. At the onset, March 2020, of COVID, what, what we could see as a coming pandemic and an unprecedented moment in world history in which a significant percentage of the world was locked down. Okay? I know we think it's about, you know, this country and politics and all that, and who knows. But it happened all over the world. And when it happened, when it became clear that it was about to happen, sociologists, psychologists, anthropologists all over the world said, this is an unprecedented moment in history. We're going to launch all kinds of studies to see what happens to people who are locked in isolation. And so for the last year, these studies have been going on. And now some of the findings are beginning to bubble to the surface. Guess what? It wasn't good for people. I know, it's a shock. Because we all thought if I could do less, if I could rest more, I'll feel better. It turns out that there have been some pretty significant consequences. Now, we all understand that we are seeing a movement in our culture, and that movement in our culture is towards isolation. We talked about it last week. In 1985, there was a study that said the average person had three people with whom to share their deepest secrets. In 2004, the study was done again. The average person had one, and 25% of people in the United States had no one with whom to share their journey. And I made the comment last week, and I think 
the rise and fall of the church can be seen in that sequence of decades. Because the early church was a revolution of hospitality. It was unprecedented. No one had ever loved anybody like that. Nobody had ever thrown their arms open like that. Nobody had ever offered to feed and care and reach out like that. And so some things are coming to the surface. We don't know what they all mean yet, and I want to say that up front. So if you go look at these studies, you're going to have them saying at the end, well, we, we don't know which came first, the chicken or the... Because we don't know yet. Because we know that the culture is moving towards isolation. But here's what's going on. The studies are finding that after 15 months of isolation, cognitive function has declined significantly in the average person in the world. Isn't that interesting? So you thought it was just you. <laughs> you thought your brain was the only one suffering from COVID fog. But it isn't. It turns out we're not really created to be isolated from one another. The second major finding is this. It has called a decline in verbal efficiency. Anybody having trouble talking? <laughs> I mean, clearly not me, but... But then I never stopped talking, did I? See, so that's how that worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the studies don't know. Maybe it's the move to isolation. Maybe it's the cognitive fog that's leading to isolation. Maybe it's the lack of verbal interaction that's leading. So they're still not sure exactly. But here's what we do know. We do know that some things have surfaced in this past year. And our order has been interrupted. And as human beings, when our order is interrupted, it doesn't feel good to us. And so when we begin to take that same principle and we say, has there ever been anything more highly structured and ordered than religion and faith? And when that order gets interrupted, something happens in us. It makes us uneasy. So when the Pharisees came practicing their Levitical law to the exclusion of lots of people, and Jesus stepped in and began to create disorder and unclean testimony, it was upsetting to everyone. And I think... We're in a stage right now in the life of the church where we could buy low because the church is hurting and the world is hurting and the culture is hurting and they're suffering from loneliness and isolation. And let me take it one step more. There are people in this room right now. And even though you're here and even though you've been faithful, you feel lonely. You don't feel like you've connected into deep friendship. You don't feel like there's been a place for you. There's some folks online how, how, and what, and who will we be? Who are you prepared to be as we move into this new life of the church? Where it's going, and what we believe, and what matters most. I want you to listen then with great emotion to this story. I want you to listen as Luke tells it, and I want you to listen for the descriptive words, because this is a lot in a little bit of space. Here it is, Luke 5.12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Isn't that an awesome picture? <laughs> that we won't stop and read if we don't stop and read it. Along came a man, and he was covered in leprosy. And, he, and when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground, and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Breach of protocol, broken the order, that is not the sequence. You as a leper are required by the law to shout out, unclean, 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 to warn people to stay away from you because you are a, a horror to the culture. 
a source of all kinds of superstition and fear. You don't want that disease jumping on you. A person who is completely isolated and pushed to the outside, a person that they would ask over and over, what sin has this person committed that such a devastating thing would have happened to them, comes and falls at the feet of Jesus, covered in leprosy, and begs him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now listen to this sentence. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Do you get the devastating effect of that? Do you, do you get the gasps, the horror the crowd would have experienced in this moment? And immediately, and he said, I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Two kinds of leprosy in first century Palestine. That is, there's a small kind that's just kind of like a skin disease. Not a big deal. You can kind of keep it hidden. You're required to report it, but it wasn't something that was obvious to people around you. And a second kind that was an actually flesh-eating kind that would eventually take your life, but it would take it one limb at a time, one digit at a time. It was literally considered to be a living death. And it was feared above all over. Even in modern times, it is considered to be one of the most devastating psychological diseases. People feel guilty. They feel unclean. They live in isolation. Now, you understand where we are in the sequence? Leprosy represented everything awful in the culture in the world, not just physical sickness, but spiritual sickness. How did this horror get visited upon this person? They deserved it. They did something to cause it. And Jesus comes along, and he walks into this situation, and this man covered with the disease, you couldn't mistake it, everybody knew what it was, breaking protocol, and Jesus touched him. And the question then that rises to the top is, who was beyond the reach and the compassion and the love of Christ. And listen, it's not a rhetorical question. It means something. I don't know if you've read the story, but Jesus tells the disciples, you're to go into all the world and make disciples. First in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Have you read the opening of the book of Acts? Do you know what they do? They stay in Jerusalem. Acts 1, the day of Pentecost, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, and they heard a sound like a rushing mighty wind, and tongues of fire split and rested on their heads, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues, and they spilled out of the room, and every person heard in their own language. And then they stayed in Jerusalem, and they just kept staying in Jerusalem and staying in Jerusalem. And through the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, they're just staying in Jerusalem. And you know what they're doing? They're debating sequence and order. Well, how's the Levitical law? And well, how Jewish do you have to be to be Christian? And what does it mean if you know Christ, but you're not a Jew? How does that all fit together? And they kept evangelizing the Jews and going to the synagogue. And two cataclysmic moments come. The first one happens in Acts chapter 9. And there's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the chief of the protocol. And he's riding on a horse to Damascus. And a bright light from heaven knocks him off his horse and says... 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? I'm the Christ you persecute. And you better stop it. He doesn't say that. But. Yeah. And something happens inside Paul, who has been this person of great sequence and order, who says now, hey, all bets are off. We're going to carry this gospel. And he becomes the primary missionary to carry this gospel to every corner of the world. Some changes, some snaps in him. And the story of Acts and the trajectory of the church will never be the same because he's out of the sequence. He's out of the order. What I used to hold dear, I now consider lost. I consider it all garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. And I will carry this message again and again and again. I will tear down walls. I will break down barriers. I will take this gospel. I will take this love of Christ to every single person that I meet. And if that's not vivid enough as to what's happening and what's unfolding, then in chapter 10 we have the second cataclysmic moment. And that is Peter waiting for his lunch. And he decides he'll go up on the roof and have a nap. And so he does. Falls asleep and he sees a vision. And there's a sheet, and it's lowered from heaven, and it's full of all kinds of unclean animals. And the voice of God says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I will not do that. I am not having bacon for breakfast. <laughs> I will not break the protocol. I will never, ever embrace something that's unclean. Peter... Do not call unclean what I have called clean. This happens three times. If you follow the biblical motif, you will know that when something happens three times, that's because it is, that 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 it is. This is the will and purpose and voice of God. Reiterated to the third degree so that you understand. And when he awakens from the dream, there is a knock at his door... And it is representatives from the house of Cornelius. Man, you talk about some unclean business. Number one, he's a Gentile. Number two, he's Roman. Number three, he's a soldier. Number four, he's in charge of the palace guard at the palace at Maritima. He, he, there's so many layers of cancel culture that belong to this group. <laughs> but Peter, fresh off, three hours ago, he wouldn't have gone. But here's a cataclysmic moment. And now, he says, I'll go. And he follows them up the coast from Jaffa, <laughs> straight up the coast to Caesarea Maritima, to the palace, to the home of Cornelius. And he walks in, and he preaches the very first sermon to a group of Gentiles. And he sums it up with words you might have learned when you were in Sunday school or in vacation Bible school. Jesus went about doing good. And the Holy Spirit falls on the house of Cornelius, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, I now know that God is no respecter of person, but he loves every person equally. How far will we go? Because we're in a space where we can buy low on the church. On the church's culture. I, I, I mean, listen, 
The Church of Jesus Christ is not winning any public relations awards right now. And it hasn't been for three or four decades. And you can say, well, I don't think we're supposed to be popular. Well, the New Testament church created a revolution. In fact, what the political leaders of the day said is that these people are turning the world upside down. They are taking our orderly, clean, sequenced world and they're accomplishing things that no one ever imagined. A revolutionary kind of hospitality where we don't just operate in the same way everyone else in the culture operates. We come into this place, this house of God, and we understand people's story. We understand their name. We understand where they're coming from. Why? Because we take the time, because it matters to us. Because we don't want a church that has lonely people in it. We don't want a church that have disconnected people in it. We want a church that's full of love and grace and connection and friendship and dinners around the table. And, 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 and when the church says, hey, we're all going to get together, we don't go, ah, I don't really want to go to that. We go, no, no. I'm an ambassador of reconciliation in this world. I, I'm, I'm practicing a revolutionary kind of hospitality. I'm going to turn the Netflix off. I'm going to go down to the church and I'm going to, I'm going to make a casserole. Remember that? I mean, you know, in the church, we used to know who made what casserole. We knew which ones to avoid. You know what I'm talking about. You absolutely know what I'm done. Don't eat that. That is not going to be okay. Where will we be? Who will we be? Because right now you can buy low. I've been in this church next month 32 years. 32 years. I don't know if that's good or bad. You don't need to clap. I'm, I mean, there's just as much reason to moan at that news as there is to clap. There is. There is. I mean, I think it's healthy for churches to go through pastoral transition. It is. It's good for everybody to figure out who they are. Because the pastor's not supposed to be the church. Church is a church. I mean, it'd be terrible if I fall over dead tomorrow and then some of you go, I ain't going back. He's dead. I ain't, just, I ain't going to do it, you know. Instead, you'd be like, no, we're the church. About time he died. We got to get somebody else in there. Somebody else that's got color in their hair or something. Maybe somebody wears a suit on Sunday, something like that. The one thing that longevity does do for you is that you can watch the church over a long period of time. It's not a different church, it's the same church. And this is what I've come to realize is the church goes through cycles. And it has over and over and over. And I've described those cycles as conquest and consolidation. Conquest is fun. New people are coming, we're growing, there's, you know, there's all kinds of work. We're, we're just, it's just exciting. There's energetic, you know. People are positive. They have positive things. There's a buzz, if you want to use the social media. There's a buzz going on. And then there are other seasons of consolidation. And people transition. For whatever reason that's going on in their life, they're, they, they're moving out of the area. They're going to another place. They're, you know, there's consolidation. And consolidation is painful. I don't know about you, but I, I wish nobody ever, 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 ever left. Ever. I just feel that way. I just want you to come, stay, and never go away. But it does happen. 
And during consolidation, you downsize and you, you consolidate and you figure out stuff and you create new policies and you look at workflows and you try to figure out how to do things better and you, you go, and it's terrible. It's just, it's, there's nothing fun about it. I don't know. Some people are made for that stuff, you know, systems and processes. And me, I just want to have a potluck. And, I mean, honestly, I, let's, just, let's just be together and laugh and let's, let's learn, let's grow, let's embrace, let's, let's just do life. But all that stuff's necessary. And I'll just tell you right now, we're in a, we've been, COVID has forced a season of consolidation. And I don't know what the next wave looks like, but I can tell you that I believe this with all my heart. We are on the brink of conquest. And the question is, where will you be in the conquest? Because somehow... We're invited into this space in which we practice this revolutionary kind of hospitality. And who is beyond the love and grace of Jesus Christ? Last thought. Jesus destroys the sequence in this moment. A man covered with leprosy falls at his feet. And he touches him. There is no precedent for this. Every structure says, send him to the priest. When the priest has examined him and found him, you understand the symbolism and the metaphor of what's happening. When the priest declares him clean, he should offer the sacrifices appropriate so that he's not only physically clean and declared so by the system, he is also ceremonially clean because he has abided by all of the order, sequence, and ritual. And once he has been declared clean physically and ceremonially, he is free to go to his home and to be embraced by his loved ones and his family and his friends. And Jesus turns this upside down. He touches him first. And then he says, now that you are whole. First he says, don't tell anyone. Because if you tell the priest that I touched you and you're healed, it ain't going to go well. <laughs> you just show up over at the temple, just, hey, 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 I woke up this morning and I got no leprosy. Ha, 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 ha. Take a look. <laughs> and then offer the sacrifices appropriate. But you can't keep that kind of love and that kind of unclean testimony a secret. Because it wasn't orderly, and it wasn't neat, and it wasn't sequential. What it was, was loving in a way that most folks couldn't even comprehend. And then here's what's so crazy. That's how he loves me. And that's how he loves you. How many times... How many times in my life have I felt the need to crawl back to a space and say, God, get me all cleaned up so I'm fit to be loved. And he touches me first and cleans me up later. And then he says, go love like that. Just go love like that. Just be in your little circle of purity with God. Just love the Lord your God with all your heart. Do what he says. Have an identity. Be holy. Be obedient to the word. 
and then love people so that they can come into their own space of relationship with God in which he will lead and guide and cleanse and transform their heart and their life. And over time, we'll just be shocked at how all of us begin to look like. Because you know what? You may not know how the seed grows, and you may not understand how it all works, but there is a teleological nature to the goodness of God that works when you don't understand it. And our job is to love him with all of our heart and to love others as ourselves. We're going to close this service sharing communion together. The feast is for his disciples. If you're new in this place and you've never prayed a simple prayer of confession, we're going to pray one together as a congregation, and we invite you to join us. And then I just want you to think about this. God, we're buying low. We're in a season of consolidation, and we're about to enter a season of conquest, and we want to be ready. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be? How do you want me to live? How might I break the sequence of my life and the order of my structure so that I could, an unclean testimony, which I just love people. I just recklessly and with great abandon love people. And I let go of a whole bunch of issues that I have and a whole bunch of... uh, And I'm just going to be different. And you're going to have to guide me and show me what that looks like and what that means. God, would you help us in this moment? Would you speak into our lives the nourishment that our souls need? Because we know that we know that we know that we know that until we feel loved and connected, safe, We're not going to be reaching out to other folks. And we know that the growth of the kingdom of God is predicated on each of us inviting someone else to share in the faith. It doesn't happen because of big mass meetings. It doesn't happen because of production value. It doesn't happen because of graphics and social media. All those things are important and have a place. It happens because people love others. Because people feel that they're a part of something that feeds and nourishes their soul, and they want other people to be a part of something that feeds and nourishes their souls, and and they can't help but talk about it and share it and offer it to people who are hungry. So would you feed the souls that are represented, some who are joining online, some who will join in the course of this week? I, I pray if they're watching, they'll pause and go in the kitchen and get whatever seems appropriate to share in this moment because it matters. You're not confined to one little sequence of time and space. So will you nourish the souls represented? Would you challenge us? We're going to buy low. We're going to be a part of this next wave of conquest. Would you teach us and show us how to do that? It's a good time to be the revitalized, biblical, anointed church of Jesus Christ. It's a really good time to be a part of it. In preparation for this table, we confess to you our sins. We're so thankful that you've promised that when we confess 
you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And now would you apportion grace to each person as there is need. We dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, Preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Now, Lord, we give you thanks. Thankful that you work in moments that are still about prepackaged communion elements. <laughs> and all of the things that go with that. Would you go then with us in this place that we may be representatives of your kingdom on earth and that we'd stop worrying about having such a clean testimony and we'd just go ahead and love people extravagantly. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name and everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.